Okay, this is a, an important fresh passage that we have today uh, because, uh, as I've been telling you, Paul has been uh, in the book of Galatians defending the gospel of grace, and he's been doing it in a few different ways. Uh, first, he uh, defended the gospel that he preached. There were false teachers in Galatia who had said, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not a qualified apostle, and this grace that he's talking about, that you don't need to add the law or law-keeping or the Old Testament to Jesus, uh, is just kind of his own invention. Paul defended himself against that, and so we looked at that in chapter 1 and 2. In chapter 3 and 4, he built a theological case for the gospel of grace. He basically was able to say, this is what the Bible has always communicated. This is what the Bible has always taught. It's by grace through faith. This is nothing new. This, this is a continuing message uh, from Abraham's day all the way until our day. Uh, but here, uh, Paul is now going to begin to answer some of the maybe questions or objective, uh, objections that people might have to the radical teaching of the gospel of grace that he's given in Galatians 1 through 4. Uh, the passage that we're entering into in chapter 5 and 6 answers a lot of our questions about this gospel of grace. Like, if, if I gain my good standing before God based on nothing that I have done and completely on the work of Christ, then does that mean that after I receive Jesus, I can just live however I want to live and I can do whatever I want to do? Isn't this gospel of grace that Paul preaches a dangerous message? Doesn't the Bible talk about God being a holy God who wants a holy people? Where does that fit in with this gospel of grace that Paul is preaching? Isn't his message, we might even be thinking, even if we don't want to say it out loud, radically impractical and permissive? Don't we need to balance it out a little bit with something else? And uh, Paul's answer to that question is going to be a resounding no. The gospel of grace is good, and it produces incredible things in people's lives when they really understand it. And that's really what chapter 5 and 6 is about. Paul is going to show us the ethics of the gospel, what is created or generated from a person's life when they really understand who Jesus is and they truly believe in the gospel of grace. And in this first paragraph that we already read today, uh, Paul tells us that uh, in Christ, we have this incredible thing called freedom. We've been set free by Jesus and uh, today, I want to talk to you about enjoying that freedom by looking at the words that Paul uses to describe how to enjoy the freedom that the gospel gives to us. So from these six verses, I want to show you four ways that I think Paul wanted us and the Galatian people that he originally wrote to, to enjoy freedom uh, in Christ. All right, the first step, number one, to enjoying gospel freedom is this. Number one, we have to stand on Christ. We have to stand completely on Jesus. Look again at verse 1 with me. Paul wrote it this way. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, he said, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the first half of that verse is a dense little statement from Paul about the freedom that Christ has won for us. He said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, 
I should probably ask the question or answer the question, how did Christ set us free? What was the big act that Jesus did that set those who believe in him free? The, the big act that Jesus did is actually what we're going to be celebrating on that Easter weekend. When we get together on Good Friday and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter Sunday, we're going to be celebrating the event, the act that Jesus accomplished that set us free if we've believed in him. But the next question that we need to ask is not just how did Jesus set us free, but what did Jesus set us free from? Now, this passage and the passages before it and the passages after it all demand a very specific answer to that question. It's an important question for Christians to get right because I've heard many believers take uh, the first half of Galatians 5 verse 1 and rip it out of its context and apply it to freedom to do all kinds of crazy things that Jesus himself would not approve of. Uh, the freedom that he's been championing here in the book of Galatians is a freedom from relating to God based on our good works. In other words, I'm a good person, so God accepts me. That should not be part of a Christian's vocabulary. If you know the gospel, if you believe the gospel, you are not walking around saying things like, I'm a good person, so God accepts me. You're walking around saying, I was dead in trespasses and sins, but Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and I believed in him, and because of what he has done, not my works, but his works, I am now accepted before God. So what have we been set free from? We've been set free from trying to gain God's approval through law-keeping or works of any kind. But the next question that we should ask is not just how did Jesus set us free, and not just from what did he set us free, but we should ask the question, why did he want to set us free? This is the new wrinkle here in verse one. Look at it again. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, he could have just said, Christ has set us free. But he's letting us know the objective in the heart of God. God's heart is that he would set us free so that we would continue in freedom. One translation put it this way, Christ set us free to be free. We must remain, in other words, in the place of freedom that the gospel wins for us. Now, this freedom is important to understand because in our modern world, including uh, among many Christians, uh, we think a lot of times of freedom as the ability to do whatever we please. But when you really think about it, if it, it may, maybe even from your own experience, doing whatever you want to do, it might feel like freedom at first, but it often leads to the exact opposite of freedom. It leads to slavery. I mean, our world is filled with support groups for people who have found themselves addicted to substances or uh, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, uh, to an unhealthy body image, to gambling. All of these things can begin as a freedom that eventually ends up enslaving a human soul. But the Bible posits a freedom that is different from that. Uh, Thomas Schreiner described it this way. He said, human beings are truly free when they are no longer under the dominion of natural desires, 
But those who are constrained by natural desires are not free, but slaves. Whereas those who live in love are liberated to serve others. So that slavery to the will of God is perfect freedom. That's what Paul is referring to in this passage. That we are free from the law, which sets us free for God, free to respond to God, free to be obedient to God, free to have God as the master of our lives, which is actually true freedom. By the gospel, we are no longer enslaved to a performance-based relationship with God. Now we're free to live the way that God made us to live. If you go back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3, you'll discover that God made man and woman. He made Adam and Eve. And they had an incredible amount of freedom before God. They could eat anything that they wanted to. There was one tree that was forbidden from them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was important for God to imbue into man a choice to make. Uh, Will I decide to follow God? Will I be devoted to God or will I rebel against God? Now, before they ate the fruit, uh, Adam and Eve are pictured as living incredibly freely before God. There's no guilt, there's no shame. Uh, They're actually naked. That's how free they are with God. There's no even sense or even understanding or knowledge that they are naked. They're just before their maker. But when they sinned and rebelled against God, the entire planet fell, they fell, sin was introduced, and everything changed. No longer were they free before God, but now they were constrained before God. They took fig leaves to cover themselves because they became conscious of their nakedness. They became conscious of their shame. It would be like taking a fish who lives in water, that's the environment it's made for, pulling it out of the water and putting it on dry land. It might still be alive momentarily, but it's dying. That's not the environment that it is made for. And that's the reality of the human condition. What we're made for is the environment of freedom before God, of enjoying God of fellowship with God, of shamelessness and guiltlessness before God. But sin brings us into another dimension. But through Jesus, we are brought out of that dimension and back into what God desired for us from the very beginning. We're free to enjoy him. And Paul tells us here that it's Christ's intention that we stay there. You might have even noticed there at the end of verse 1, Paul gives a warning He says, stand firm in that freedom and refuse to submit again to a yoke, like an animal yoke of slavery. Don't take that yoke upon you, Paul is saying. Now this, to me at least, is a surprising exhortation from Paul because everything he's said up to this point gives me the impression that the freedom that Jesus wins for us on the cross is so strong, so resolute, so powerful, so dynamic, it feels un alterable in my life. But now Paul is saying, no, you could be in danger of taking on to yourself a yoke of slavery. So stand firm in Christ. Stand firm on the righteousness of Christ and don't go back to that works-based relationship with God. You see, Paul knew that despite the divine source of freedom, Humans are prone to legalism. 
And we can slip from the beautiful position that Christ has won for us. And pretty soon, even as a Christian, the same feelings of guilt or shame or misery or even worse than you used to have before you knew Jesus come flooding into your heart. It might be like a prisoner who has been jailed, imprisoned for so many years that the idea of being set free is uncomfortable for them. It's a new environment. How do I live that way? And a prisoner who chooses, I want to stay in the system. I want to stay in prison because that's what I know is similar to those who, even as Christians, go back to a law-based relationship with God because it's what they know. It's what they've experienced in the past. And so Paul tells us, don't go there. Maintain the freedom that Jesus won for you. Just like Joshua in the Old Testament, you might remember Joshua, he took the people of Israel and he brought them into the promised land. And he served as their leader, he served as their general. He led them into victories over various uh, peoples that God had determined were ripe for judgment. And so he used his people for that. And after Joshua was old and ready to die, he told the people of Israel, look, I've helped you get this far but he basically encouraged them, maintain the freedom that I have helped you win. And our Joshua, Jesus, he's done the same thing for us. He has set us free, but we learn here from Galatians 5 verse 1, he has set us free for freedom. He wants us to maintain that freedom before him. So that's the first thing. You got to stand firm in and on what Jesus has done for you. Okay, the second thing that I want you to see, though, is that uh, we enjoy our freedom in Christ by <clears throat> remaining in grace, remaining in grace. Uh, and to exhort us in this direction, Paul actually says some really severe words. Let's read them again in verse two through four. They're kind of scary at first glance. Uh, he said in verse two, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, at this point, uh, some of you might be squirming in your seat a little bit, like, oh man, why does Paul have to make it so awkward and bring up this circumcision subject again? Uh, why is he talking about something so awkward, something so private, something so delicate, something so personal? Uh, but the problem was that Paul hadn't brought this up originally. It was the false teachers in Galatia who had brought this up to their listeners. Uh, what they had taught is that these Gentile believers, if they really wanted to be saved, they had to add the Old Testament legal code, and they needed to, if they were men, be uh, circumcised. Uh, their teaching is summed up actually by false teachers in the book of Acts who said this in Acts chapter 15, unless you are circumcised and keep the law, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying to these new Galatian believers. Great that you heard about Jesus, but unless you add circumcision and law keeping, you won't be saved by Jesus. And uh, of, of course, this was like the big act, circumcision, that they used to communicate that faith in Christ was insufficient for salvation. In other words, their message to the Galatians was, you, you have to do something. You have to add something if you really want to be saved. 
Now, their action was circumcision, but circumcision could be a stand-in today for any practice or any viewpoint that a person says you must do or you must have in order to be saved or accepted by God. Okay, but Paul warned that taking up a practice like this, it has terrible consequences. Uh, He used really severe sentences and phrases. He said things like, Christ is of no advantage to you when you add to the gospel. He said, you're actually severed from Christ when you add to the gospel. He said, you actually become obligated to keep the whole law. Probably the false teachers in Galatia hadn't like given full disclosure. You know, like, you better read the fine print. You submit to one law, you got to submit to all the laws of the Old Testament. And uh, the most severe phrase to me, though, is the last thing he said at the end of verse 4. He said that when you add works to the gospel as a way to be approved by God, it means that you have fallen away from grace. It's a severe term. Now, in context, Paul does not seem to be uh, meaning a loss of salvation. Um, He's, all through his letter, written about the danger of adding law or law-keeping to the gospel. And when you move towards a works-based relationship with God, what's happening? You are entering that, but you're also departing something. What are you departing? You're departing from a grace-oriented relationship with God. You are leaving the sphere of grace. Now, when somebody does that, when a Christian makes that decision and says, I I don't want to relate to God by grace anymore. I want to relate to him according to my morality, according to my works, according to my righteousness— When they make that decision, like I said, I don't think Paul is saying they're losing their salvation, but they're just not relating to God as God is meant to be related to. But when a person does that, when they leave the sphere of grace, it could be an indication that that person never truly knew grace in the first place, but merely claimed with their lips that they knew Jesus. So this is a strong warning that Paul gives. Uh, The word that Paul used for fall away from grace is a word that's used to describe being shipwrecked or being blown completely off course. This person has run aground, in other words. And this happens today. Uh, One example of this would be when a believer who's part of a gospel-preaching church where they are hearing that it is that we are saved by grace through faith When they make a decision through personal study or somebody trying to reach out to them and pull them into their thing, they make a decision to leave a a, a congregation like that to join one that says salvation is dependent upon things like the quality of your repentance or a specific confession or uh, being baptized with us or having membership with us in our group. That person I think according to what Paul is saying here is they have fallen from grace. They're no longer relating to God in the sphere that God wants to be related to in the sphere of grace. So I think the exhortation for us is let's stay in the sphere of God's grace. Let's allow the grace and the love of God to do its beautiful work in our lives. What should it produce in us? It should make us confident before God. It should make us free before God. It should melt away the ice of fear and insecurity before God. Christian life 
begins by believing in the love and grace of God, and it continues that way as well. Believing continually in the love and grace that God freely offers, it sets off a series of explosive and beautiful results in a Christian's life. So we have to remain in grace. Okay, number three, though, this comes from verse five. A third way to enjoy our freedom in Christ. I really love this one. Paul teaches that we need to wait for righteousness. We need to wait for righteousness. What what do I mean by that? What, What did he mean by that? Well, let's read verse five again together. He said, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Okay, what, is this, what does this mean when, when Paul says that? By, by faith, through the Spirit's help, we are eagerly waiting, he says, for the hope of righteousness. A gospel person, this is their experience and reality. What, what Paul is saying is that people who have believed the gospel, who the Lord has reached into, the, into their hearts, they are going to look forward with great anticipation to Christ's return for a very specific reason in this passage. The Bible gives us lots of reasons to look forward to the visible coming of Christ, to the establishing of his new heavens and new earth and his rule and reign forever. But Paul has one specific reason for wanting that in this passage. And it's real simple. The passage tells us that we are to long for it because when that event occurs, we will experience the righteousness that God has given to us when we believe in his son. In other words, there will be no sin within us, no temptation that we're prone to. We will be completely clean before God. And that is what someone who is drawn to the gospel wants more than anything. I mean, think about it. The gospel message, it declares that God can fix the problem of sin within The gospel message is not come to church. The gospel message is not be a good person and God will love you. The gospel message is not be religious. It's the way to go. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is we have a problem. It's called sin. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died in our place and took all the judgment that we deserved into his body on that cross. And then he rose from the dead so that if you believe in him, you'll have life with him forever. That's the gospel message. But what Paul is saying is that if that's what the gospel is, that we come face to face with our sin and we want Jesus to deliver us from it, then because of that message, we will be looking forward to the day when he returns so that we will be experientially set free from it forever. That's what he's saying. A gospel person, that's how they're going to feel. Look at what John said in 1 John 3, verse 2. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. He's talking about Jesus. When Jesus appears, you and me, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Just think of it. That's incredible. We're not going to be like him in divinity, but we're going to be like him in character. 
in sinlessness, in purity. You know, if you're a Christian today, all things are new for you right now. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus, but you have a flesh, you still sin, you still make mistakes, you still do the wrong thing, feel the wrong thing, you still want to do the wrong thing so often. But in that moment, sin will have no more power over us experientially. will never decay us. We'll be totally conformed in every facet of our character to God's will. There will be no blind spots, no secret corners and the recesses of our hearts and no failure of any kind. And, and what Paul is saying is we as God's people, we are longing for that because the gospel message is be set free from that by Jesus. So of course we're looking forward to that day. Uh, when, when, I, when I was younger, uh, when there was a different way of acquiring music than uh, we acquire music these days. I've, I've always loved music, but I, I feel like we're living in a golden age of music in some ways because we can access it on our phones. You can just get anything that you want to listen to at any time. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love that. But back in the day, that's not the way it was. You had to buy some kind of physical medium that would deliver the music to you. So, you know, you had albums, you had uh, eight tracks, you had tapes. And uh, when I was growing up in the 90s, we had CDs, you know, and you'd go to the, the, the CD store, the record shop, you know, and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out what's going to be good, what's not going to be good, and you want to buy music. And rec record companies figured out how to kind of game the system. What, what they would do is they would have a band release one or two just jams on the radio. You'd hear those jams, and you're like, man, I got to get the full album because I love that song, or I love those two songs. So you go to the record store, you buy an album, and so often you'd be disappointed. You know, you'd start playing all the songs, and they've got like tracks where they're just talking, or they got these terrible songs that are just like, man, this is no good. At least I got the jam. At least I own it now, you know, but you're disappointed. But every once in a while, there'd be a band who would release an album where you went to buy it, and you started listening, and you're like, man, this whole thing is so good. From the beginning to the end, this whole album is so good. And I remember we had a phrase for that. We, we said, it's all killer, no filler. You guys ever say that? All killer, no filler. Look, look this is the reality of our lives right now as Christians. We are some killer, lots of filler. That's just the reality. There are things about every one, of, every one of us in Christ, no matter how well we're doing with him, that are beautiful, good, strong, wonderful, admirable, like we're doing well, but then there are other areas in every one of our lives that have yet to be touched by Jesus. And we're waiting for that. But when Christ comes, it will be all killer, no filler. It will be total transformation. This is a beautiful hope. And I don't want you to mistake what Paul means when he uses the word hope. He's not using it like we use it in modern English. I wish for, I hope for, I, 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 maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. No, the, the Greek word for hope that Paul is using is a word that means it's sure, it's been promised, it will happen. This is going to occur. And you might be asking yourself, well, how does that help me enjoy my freedom in Christ? Well, this is a huge protection of your freedom in Christ because it protects you from both sides of things. 
on the one hand, longing for the ultimate transformation, glorification, that will come when Christ returns, it protects you from legalism. Because when that's what you're looking forward to, being like Jesus, <laughs> completely through and through, inside and out, you know the little rules and little laws and legalism are not really going to change you into that. So it protects you from silly religiosity. But it also protects you from the other extreme, just taking whatever license you want to take, following any impulse that your, that your mind or your body has. Since Jesus-like righteousness is what you're longing for, what you're hoping for, what you're expecting, since it's the very thing that you're on the edge of your seat to receive one day, continuing in sin now makes absolutely no sense. Why would I want to engage in that which is so unlike my Lord, so unlike righteousness, when the thing I'm longing for more than anything is to become righteous, why would I want to sin when that's my final and total destination and I can't wait to get there? Paul said that we, by faith, eagerly wait for this moment to come. Recently, I saw a video that I thought depicted this eager anticipation really well. It happened in a parking lot of a strip mall where a person pulled out their phone and they began recording a neighboring car that had a dog in it. Apparently, the dog's owner had gotten out of the car, put, left the dog in the car, and walked to a bank that was right in front of the hood of the car. They parked right in front of the bank. And the dog never lost sight of that door. They saw their owner go in, and the dog was just freaking out, wanting their master to return. And the dog found itself in the driver's seat, just looking at the door of the bank, eventually kind of stood up and put its paws on the, whatever was in front of it, which happened to be the horn of the car, and started barking for the master to return. But every time it barked, it kind of shoved its chest out, so it was simultaneously honking the horn, barking and honking, barking and honking, wanting its master to return. And I thought, well, that's a great picture of the kind of spirit that we should have looking forward to our master's return, wanting Jesus to come for us. All right, the last thing that I want you to see, though, about enjoying our freedom in Christ is number four, we have to respond to him through love, respond through love. Look at what he said in verse six. He said, for in Christ Jesus... <clears throat> Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, what does Paul mean by this whole sentence? Well, partly what he means is that being uh, very religious or, or on the other side, being irreligious, it really doesn't produce real fruit of any kind. The best motivation for good works is love. He says faith works through love. It's, it's love that motivates uh, the best version of humanity. A person under grace, a person who loves God, no longer does good works as a way to earn merit or standing before God. 
Instead, for them, obedience to God is carrying out acts of love for who God is. They've been so impressed by his love, so impacted by his love that they are responding to it. That's how Paul Paul saw it. He said, faith works through love. It's been said that faith alone saves, but that saving faith is never alone. True faith is trust in what Christ has done, and the revelation required to see what Christ has done leads to a love for, an appreciation for God. And love for God leads to a strong desire to be like Jesus and serve him. So we respond through love. Our faith, he says, works through love. This is why Jesus could say things like in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, who's able to say that kind of thing? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does that mean? Perhaps one angle or facet to what it means is that it's like a parent who tells their child, if you love me, you'll take care of yourself. If you love me, you'll get your degree. If you love me, you'll be financially responsible. If you love me, you won't throw your health down the drain with reckless living. If you love me, keep my advice, keep the standards that I have taught to you. In a similar way, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments because his commandments are the very best thing for us. Unfortunately, we're often like children who say, if you loved me, you would let me do whatever I want to do. Or we think that because we love ourselves, we should treat ourselves to whatever desire enters into our minds. But what we learn in scripture is that many of our desires are actually the worst things for us and don't lead to the blessing of humanity. Love, however, obeys Christ because his word is the best for us. This is what we're called to. Perhaps an example of love being a great motivation would be to consider the difference between a nanny and a loving mother. You know, a mother, of course, is going to get tired caring for her children, but love is going to, at the end of the day, drive her forward. And a nanny might genuinely love the children that they're called to care for, but at the end of the day, they have hours and they receive pay for their efforts. They could never love like a good mother loves. Paul said it this way. He said, Christ's love compels us. It's this compelling love that serves as our best motivation for good works. Love is much better than law. So Paul here is beginning to introduce to us the concept that the gospel of grace produces a rather radical version of life. You see, law is safer We kind of have our little rules and regulations and here's the things I have to do and that I'm not supposed to do when we approach God with law. But by grace, we sing things like, he demands my life, he demands my all, he demands my soul. It's like there's nothing off limits for God because of grace. But that's a much better way to produce a beautiful life. I'm saying a lot of these things because I think many people misunderstand what Paul is doing in Galatians 5 and 6. I think some people think that what Paul is doing in Galatians 5 and 6, because he describes the ethics of the Christian life, 
is that what he's done is he's kind of given us four chapters about the gospel of grace, and he's kind of realized like, ooh, I might have gone a little too far. And so now what I need to do is provide balance to the gospel of grace by talking about things that we should do as Christians. That's not what Paul is doing. What he's doing is showing what grace produces in a person's life when they truly understand it. When Christ becomes famous to that individual heart in an ongoing way, Galatians 5 and 6 describes what will unfold, the beautiful life that they will live. And grace is a much better motivation than any other motivation out there. In Greek mythology, there's the famous story of Odysseus and the sirens. They were human-like creatures who had angelic voices. And they lived on three islands, and whenever sailors would pass by these islands in this myth, uh, the sailors would find themselves drawn to the singing of these sirens. And so they would turn their ships and head towards the islands, only to crash on the rocks near the islands and lose their lives. And Odysseus knew about this, but he desperately wanted to hear the song of these sirens. So he had his men tie him to the mast of the ship. He filled his men's ears with wax so they couldn't hear the singing. And he commanded his men, as we passed by, passed by the islands, no matter what I say, no matter how strongly I plead with you, don't change your course. Keep your course, pass by until we're out of earshot of these singers. And in the myth or the story, his plan worked. Uh, he heard their songs, but in one sense it didn't work because he was tormented by what he heard. But there was another story of a different sailor named Jason. Uh, his method was far different from Odysseus. Uh, he acquired a talented musician named Orpheus. And what he did is as he passed by the island, he asked Orpheus to play his music. And Orpheus was so gifted and so skilled that as long as his music was playing, the sailors couldn't hear the song of the sirens that were nearby, and their lives were preserved. I believe that this is a good depiction of the life that we can have in Christ. We can respond in love to the incredible song of the gospel. The beautiful song of the gospel, it is a far greater motivation for a beautiful life than the binding ropes or blocking wax of the law. And that's what Paul is holding out to us. There is an incredible life that you can fly in, but it starts, it continues, and it ends with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen?